in the Song of the Sea, which I'm sure you noticed is pretty metal, um, obviously. Uh, there, there's a lot that, that Miriam and Moses are saying here. Um, this song is sung on the other side of this incredible conflict between Pharaoh and these Hebrew slaves who've just been freed, the Israelites. And I think we all know the story well, right? God miraculously splits the Red Sea. Moses leads the Israelites through on dry ground, right? We, we know all of these details, right? Eventually, this water that has been held back comes crashing down on Pharaoh and his armies, destroying them, right? But that's, that's Exodus 14. This is Exodus 15. Exodus 15 is unique in the way that we're hearing it, right? It tells the same story, but a little bit differently. It's a song they sing, rather than a story they're telling us. It's a moment of, of worship for, for God's people, and not just a narrative, right? It's not just some regurgitation of the facts, the details of what happened in that moment. It's a group of people who've seen something amazing. And all they can do in this moment is simply sing. They don't know what else to do with themselves, right? They have been delivered from death. What seemed like was no possible escape. And somehow they've come out of it. They have triumphed. And so they, they worship. It's different, chapter 15, from what we've seen in chapter 14. And what's so cool about Exodus 14 and 15 together is that when you read them side by side, you kind of get this, this, this sense that Israel has come full circle. From Genesis to, to where we are in Exodus, they have come full circle in terms of their history, right? Jonathan talked about this a, a few weeks ago uh, as we were talking about the plagues and how each plague represented an act of, of decreation, like uncreation. God is undoing everything he had done in the beginning, right? God is systematically undoing his creation, unraveling it with each plague, and you can see it. It's God's way of, of making clear what would happen. He's showing Pharaoh in Egypt. What would happen if he were not in power? Pharaoh believes this, this lie, that he is God, and he has this, this control, this power. He reigns, and God is making clear he is the one who reigns over creation. Things unravel so much so that, that Pharaoh, as hard as his heart is, is finally willing to allow them to leave Egypt. He willingly lets them go. He asks them to leave. And after they escape, the Israelites find themselves in the desert in this very Genesis 1 kind of moment. We might miss that if we kind of read through it really quickly, but this is a Genesis 1 kind of moment because they find themselves staring once again at this hopeless, empty water, the sea, before them. In Hebrew, Genesis 1 uses this word, tohu wabohu, formless and void. The earth was formless and empty. It was just nothingness. Nothing of real consequence was there. It was just empty, open water, the sea. And now Israel finds themselves, Pharaoh and his army on one side and on the other side, the Red Sea. Tohu wabohu, they're looking 
into the abyss, staring down death. Here they are again, looking at this, what seems like no escape. This is nothingness. Nothing can be done. They are looking upon these waters all over again. Genesis 1 was their beginning, and it seems like this is, is their end. But they're looking at the same thing. Because as overwhelming as the army of Pharaoh is, conceivably, maybe one out of every hundred times they decide to fight Pharaoh and his army, they might win. But not so the, the sea. Eventually, they will be swallowed by it. There's nothing they can do. They can't just walk through the ocean, right? They would be swallowed up. They know this. And I don't know about you, as a kid, I had a, a pretty pathological fear of water, apparently. From what I, the, the stories I am told and the things I remember as I pieced details together, I, I lived with this awareness that there was no knowing what was at the bottom. That was the thing that terrified me. You can't see all the way to the bottom always, and I don't know what's there, right? And there was this program, some of you guys remember this, you 80s, 90s kids might remember Rescue 911. They made me terrified of that little drain at the bottom of the pool. You have to avoid the drain. You might just get sucked in, you know. There was this sense, right? Who knows what's at the bottom? It could be a snake. It could be a shark. It could be the Loch Ness Monster. I don't know what's down there, right? And I, I lived with this awareness that if I can't tread water, then inevitably I'm going to sink like a stone down to the bottom, right? Into the chasm. I'm going to be swallowed up by it, right? I live with this awareness. I took swimming lessons from a lot of people. And what I've learned over the years since I've had children is apparently I passed this down to them genetically. We're taking, we're taking swimming lessons now, guys. We're taking swimming lessons. This is good news for the Kilo family. It's, it's going well. Um, but that's the thing I think most of us can relate to at some level. Most of us, even though we might like water, we recognize there's a sense of, of trepidation. And in the ancient world, it was all the more so. The ancients attached this sort of symbolic meaning to water. It wasn't just the normal trepidation, it was something beyond that. And that's why if you look at so many of these early kind of creation stories from so many different cultures, you find that they begin with water. They begin with this thing that is uncertain, unknowable, it's frightening, right? The water is deep, what lies within it is uncertain, it is treacherous, it is chaotic, no one understands it, and you don't venture there, right? This is the water. We know this. this Existed for centuries afterward, this way of, of seeing the sea. It's a fearful place. And for so many cultures, that's where the story begins. And for Israel, that's where the story begins. But it's a little bit different for Israel. Yes, it begins in the silence, in the darkness, in the meaningless emptiness, right? But here's what's different. Verse 2 of Genesis. The Spirit was hovering over the waters. God is holding all of this together somehow. His spirit is hovering over the waters. God wants us to know from the beginning that he dwells even there. Not just in the places we might associate him with. God dwells even there. Not, not just in the places we normally think, but in the abandoned and deserted and forgotten places, in the dead places of this world, it seems like. There he is hovering over the water. And in just a word, God creates something that is unspeakably beautiful. This is who he is. And at the Red Sea, here are the Israelites. 
They find themselves there again, seemingly back at the beginning, back where they started. But this time, as they stare into the abyss, the Hebrew slaves, they, they have this, this kind of front row seat to what God is about to do. No one got to see creation. They're about to see God do something. God is creating for himself a people. Israel is his people. He will be their God, and they will be his people, he says over and over again in Exodus. That's the point of what's happening here. God intends for his people to live in his presence as they once did. He's bringing them back into that. This is the beginning all over again. A new beginning for God's people, right? A new kind of Genesis. Now, the story um, that we know so well from chapter 14 is reflected in chapter 15. It's different, right? It's poetic. The details aren't going to be the same, right? It's artistic in some sense. But the details in the song are recognizable from chapter 15. They all kind of line up from what we've just heard in this story. But there's this one little emphasis that's different. There's this one little thing. This way that the song wants to phrase things. This way that the song wants to accent things. In chapter 14, we're told that all night long, God drove back the sea with a a strong eastern wind. God sent wind, and he held back the sea. But the song says it a little bit differently. If you look in chapter 15, like verse 8, the song says, By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. Different angle, right? Verse 10, you blew with your breath, and the sea covered them. It's a different emphasis, right? So what... What was it? Was it that God sent wind to hold back the waters? Or did God blow with his own breath and hold back the water? It's two very different ways of saying it. The same thing. God obviously did it either way, but how does that look? And it's kind of interesting. In Hebrew, there's this one word that holds it all together, that helps make sense of it. Our translations show this this difference, right? We tend to to see these things in very scientific terms, and that's the way we we understand it. The ancients saw it differently. They had this one word that tied it all together. The word the Hebrews used to refer to wind or breath, even God's spirit was all the same. Ruach. Same word for all of these things. Ruach. It was the, the Ruach you find in verse 2 of Genesis that was hovering over the waters. As you get into Exodus 14, it was an eastern ruach that blew against the sea and held it back. And it was the same ruach that God blew from his nostrils to hold back the waters. Again, we see things in very scientific terms. We have these categories We theorize about these things, and our language is very specific about these sorts of things. But the Hebrews, they see it all somehow weaved together. They thought about it so different than the way we think about it. This one word in Hebrew has so many different facets, right? So the first one is the most familiar, right? Ruach means God's Holy Spirit. This is God's presence among us. It's God's manifestation in this world. It's how God works in the world, is is by His His Spirit, right? But then it also means breath, 
like my breath, your breath, and God's breath. Such that when you read, God created Adam, he, he makes Adam from the dust, right? But then God breathes his ruach into Adam. And Adam is no longer just a sculpture, right? He's no longer just dust. It takes God's breath for him to be a living being, right? More than just a piece of art. He becomes human when God breathes into him. That's ruach. The third concept is wind, right? All of these things that we've attached all kinds of scientific meanings to, like atmospheric pressure, all of these things, right? Ruach. When they talked about the wind blowing through the trees, or a familiar story, the wind blowing through the valley of dry bones, Ezekiel 37, it was God's ruach that blew through that dead, lifeless valley and brought about this resurrection, right? That's all the same for them. This is how they saw it. Ruach is God's spirit. It is the breath I breathe. It is the breath God breathes into me. It is the wind blowing against the sea miraculously. But one thing is clear. Wherever the spirit is, there is life. This is the emphasis. The spirit brings life. And in this song they're singing, right? They're making a very clear point. This was not just a, a windy day in the desert. A storm didn't just blow in. This is unique, they're trying to say. This was God's wind. This was God's very breath. This was his spirit that held back the sea more than what we might think. Because again, we immediately start going into these categories. People start trying to explain all of these things. Well, could it have been possible? Like, was that a place that normally had a lot of wind, right? We start thinking about these things. Is, is this a thing we know about weather in the ancient world? Is this a thing that, that commonly happened there and that's not how they see it? No, this was God's very spirit. Here again, we see, as they're staring into the abyss, there is God's Spirit hovering over the waters, bringing order from their chaos, bringing life where there is only death, it seems. That is good. There's a reason they're singing, right? This is incredible what they're seeing unfold for them. And a song is the only fitful way they see to respond to it. But here's the thing I, I find myself wrestling with as I was reading through it this morning, um, and some of this comes from just the fact that I, you know, I sing. If you spend any time in my house, it's annoying how much I sing. I annoy myself how much I sing. When I try to keep track of these things, it, it's constant. I'm always whistling. I'm always singing, right? This is just kind of part of who I am, right? And I play worship music and have done that for years. That's a big part of who I am as a, a pastor. But there's this thing, right? In chapter 14, we're told what happened. We're told the details of the story. We're told every little fact. It's all laid out for us so we know this happened and this is how it went down. But in chapter 15, in the Song of the Sea, we're told instead how they understood it all. Chapter 14 is giving me the details. It's giving me the facts. But chapter 15 is telling me how they understand what God is doing through it all. It's, it's when they sing that they find all of this meaning for what God has been doing. When they sing, when they worship in this moment, there's a clarity that comes from it. Worship, I think, is, is where ultimately 
we find and, and they find understanding, where they find clarity, where they're able to make sense of their details, right? This is the, the notion of, of worship. We come at any given moment as the church. We come together and we bring our details. We bring our facts. We bring our circumstances. We bring our wounds. We bring all of these things. And in worship, God helps us to make sense of it all. God helps us to understand it. God gives us his wisdom and his truth so that we can make sense of these things. Singing has a way of helping us understand our circumstances. Worshiping, it, it allows us to, to see things from a different angle, to understand what God might have been doing through all of these things in a way that we can't always see. And I think most of us get that. We recognize that's important, that's valuable. But it's, I mean, obviously, also kind of inconvenient. Worship is a costly sort of decision to make. You all know this. You got up at some point this morning, and maybe there was some struggle attached to it, right? You had to sacrifice something. We live in a culture of, of like, brunch life, man, and, and you're missing all of that for this at some level. Like, we, we know this, but it's one of those things that we kind of, like, push to the side. It, it's easily lost priority in our lives over and over again. And what I'm afraid happens so often is that we... We live lives with no clarity, with no peace, with no sense of, of real understanding or, or meaning. Like, we all recognize that. As a culture, we are wrestling with those kinds of things. And I think a lot of times it's just because we're not singing. Like we, we don't worship in the same kind of way that maybe we once did or that we're seeing play out here in this moment. We have all of these circumstances, all of our doubts, all of these things that are going on in our lives, all these struggles, and we process all of these things not generally in community, not generally in spaces like this, not in singing. Instead, we tend to process these things here. We're processing these things between our ears in isolation. This is the way we wrestle with things. This is the way we come to find understanding. This is the way we make sense of it all. And our lives so often are characterized by this very real anxiety, a very real depression, because we can't sort through all of it. We can't make sense of all of it. We wrestle with these things internally and almost never externally. It's a thing that we, we see happening over and over again. We don't seek counsel all that often. We aren't finding others to sing with. That's not a thing we do. Again, this is all an individual sort of process, right? We're listening to one voice, our own. This is what we're doing all of the time. We're trying to make sense of it. And truth be told, that's, that's what we've been handed by our families a lot of times, certainly by our society. This is where you're going to find meaning, right here. This is where you're going to find truth on your own. You have to find your own. You have to work for it. Find your own truth. Find your own way of making sense of everything that, that's happening to you, that you're going through. But they found it, not in isolation, but together, singing. They made sense of what God had just done, what they have been through, singing. I've always loved Psalm 73. Um, Asaph says it really well. This is what he says. He says, 
as he's kind of like, he's wrestling with the injustice that he sees playing out all around him. He says, this is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth, right? They get richer and richer. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. And when I tried to understand this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. It's when he enters into the sanctuary. It's when he allows himself to come into the presence of God in this different kind of way. Not trying to think his way out of it, not trying to make sense of it through his own means, but worshiping. When I came into the sanctuary, he says, then I understood. He goes on, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing in it that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Like there, there are some things you cannot understand immediately. It may take five years, ten years for you to be able to even scratch the surface of some of the things you've been through some of the things that have happened to you, right? There's some things there just aren't easy answers for, right? I'd say probably most of the things in our lives don't have easy answers. They have complex, difficult answers, right? Our lives are full of things that are very often too painful to articulate. You can't put words on it. You try to, and it, you can't fully communicate what you're feeling, what you've dealt with. Just like we know there are some things in our lives that are too profoundly beautiful to be able to articulate. We know this. We experience in relationships. There are sometimes these relationships that are so deeply meaningful to us that we cannot put words to thank people, right? We know this. There are some things you just can't articulate or put words on. And so we make music. So we, we sing, right? This is a thing. This is a part of humanity from our earliest days, right? It's interesting, I was a, a communication major in college, and I can remember all of the, the theories, the communicative theories about how language forms. If you have any friends who are linguists, I, I had a few friends in college who were linguistic majors, and they would talk about these things. How language formed first. How did humanity start talking with one another, right? And generally, for the longest time, for centuries, the theory was, obviously, that people learned to speak with one another first. We learned to talk. We had to communicate with one another first, and then came things like art and music and, and singing, these kinds of things. Then all of that theory came about. But what we're finding now, more often, is that researchers are saying, they're starting to lean in the other direction, that we actually learned music first. We learned to sing before we learned to speak. Like, we, we know this. Like, you find all, like, these, these cave drawings and things. People who are trying to find a way to express what they've seen, what they've experienced, right? We know this. And that begins to make a whole lot more sense. People learned to hum. They learned to sing before they ever learned to speak. Art came first. Music came first, right? It is innate. This is a part of us. Inherently as hum human beings, right, we 
are drawn toward it. Even those of us who would say we're not musical, it feels natural to us. We enjoy it at some level. When C.S. Lewis wrote The, uh, the Magician's Nephew, maybe you've read it. Uh, it it's one of the, the less known uh, books in the Chronicles of Narnia. But The Magician's Nephew tells the story of how God created, how Aslan created, the lion creates. And the way C.S. Lewis portrays it, I, I like it because it, it lines up with what we're talking about here. But more than that, I, I think it, it really helps us understand this. He portrays Aslan as creating by singing. Aslan sang creation into being, right? Aslan sang and Narnia came to be as we know it. It was a song, right? Because there are some things in our lives that are too profound for a thesis or a dissertation. Sometimes it'll have to be a song instead. And I think that's what Exodus 15 is. A moment that is too profound for words quite yet. And you notice it's kind of bookended. It begins with this same little chorus and it ends with it. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea, right? It's as if that song got longer and longer over the years. In the beginning, it started as something really simple. And over the years, it became more and more complex, more and more beautiful. Israel is seeing something too beautiful to be able to articulate it with just the facts. It had to be a song. They had to tell the story this way. When they saw God overcome the waters, when they saw God overcome what was certain death, when he delivered them from slavery, they had to sing. They sang, the Lord reigns forever and ever. We've lived with the illusion that Pharaoh reigns, that Pharaoh is king. No, Yahweh is king, right? And they sing it again and again. He's Lord even over the sea. This is what he's like. We find ourselves in a very, a very therapeutic moment as a culture. I can't recall a time in my life where people were more comfortable talking about their therapist, talking about who they're going to counseling with, or about their medication, all these things. People are wrestling with things in a visible, external way, maybe more so than, than at any point in our culture's history, right? That's incredible. That's healthy. It's good in the church, and the church ought to encourage it. I think so many of us have those kinds of relationships, and we're, we're, we're seeking it at that level, at a clinical level. But when I reflect on this, I, I, I don't know, I'm just not that sure we're, we're looking for people to sing with, though. I, I, like, I, we have people we complain to, like so many of our relationships are that, like we just, and we love these, you ought to have those kinds of relationships, you need somebody who's willing to listen to you complain about what you're going through, you need that, somebody to lament with. But a song can be a lament too, right? Like, we have to be looking for ways to worship in the midst of these things. Because it's there we find clarity and understanding. So keep all of that in mind, right? I, shelf that for a minute. What we've been saying. They see this incredible thing unfold. They sing these words. They sing God. They, they see God bringing order from their chaos, defeating death, life in the midst of what seemed like death. Keep all of that in mind. God is at power even over the sea. Remember the song of the sea. And then think about another story that's familiar to you as well, that we all know. Mark 4, Jesus and his disciples find themselves on a boat in the middle of a storm. Jesus goes to sleep, because of course he does, and the disciples obviously are preoccupied with what's playing out all around them. 
They don't know what to do. So they wake Jesus. They're scared to death. Because remember, the water's treacherous. There's something about the water that is fearful. And Jesus awakes and says simply, quiet. We don't know if he shouts it. We don't know if he whispers it. But whatever he does, it works. Be still, he says. The storm dies down, right? The disciples are, are stunned. And in that moment, you see kind of a, an act of worship. Who is this, they say, that even the, the wind and the waves obey him? Or think Matthew 14, another very familiar story about the disciples on the water with Jesus. They find themselves on rough seas. In the distance, they see this very scary figure. It's Jesus walking toward them on the water, walking across the Sea of Galilee, and obviously they're uncomfortable with that. They've never seen something like that happen before, but Peter gets out of the boat, and he begins to walk toward Jesus on the water, right? You know the story. Peter begins to sink down into the sea, and he cries out. Jesus reaches out, and he, he pulls Peter up. Jesus is, is doing all of this for a reason. Matthew and Mark are telling us these stories for a reason. You see these in all of the Gospels for a very specific reason. They need you to know Jesus is king. Jesus is the one who reigns forever and ever. He's the one who reigns even over the sea, right? In Jesus, you are seeing the fullness of Yahweh dwell. Jesus wants us to know it. They want us to know it. Jesus is the one who is rescuing his people from certain death, from the abyss, from the sea. Jesus is the one who's bringing a whole new kind of exodus. Jesus is the one who's bringing a whole new kind of genesis. Jesus is the one who's going to do all of this. Jesus brings calm from the storm. He brings order from the chaos. He brings life from what seems like is certain death. Jesus is the one who's taking us back to that place that God intended for his people in the beginning. There's this, this interesting imagery uh, in the beginning of Genesis. You probably remember a lot of the description of Eden. Uh, in Eden, there's this river that flows into the garden. And this river is what makes Eden so lush. The river is what makes Eden so vibrant, right? This is why there's life in Eden. There's this river that feeds into it. So think about that. In chapter 2, you've got this river flowing into Eden, and it's just filled with life. Chapter 1, you have this sea of nothingness, of chaos, terrible emptiness, right? Yet God is hovering over those waters. And as he's creating the water which was once chaotic and meaningless and hopeless, it somehow becomes filled with life. God is harnessing the sea in such a way that now these waters flow into his garden. The chaotic waters have become peaceful and life-giving. God is making life from death, right? That became an image that was so familiar to Israel, right? They used it over and over again. Ezekiel, when he was trying to portray the kingdom of God, what it would be like. When Messiah comes, he portrayed the temple in this unique way. He said that there'd be a river flowing out of the temple. He's trying to communicate this. This is the space in which God dwells. God's bringing us back 
to Eden. God desires to dwell with his people in the temple just like he did in Eden, right? God is doing this. He's trying to communicate. In the kingdom, God will dwell with his people, right? John the Revelator is probably a more familiar image, right? Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. John describes the kingdom in very similar fashion. Then he says, The angel showed me the river of the water of life. As clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. John says, when he's portraying the kingdom, there is a river flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. God's throne, the Lamb's throne at his right hand, right? There is a river flowing from the throne of Jesus feeding into the tree of life, this tree whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. There is a river. John is trying to make clear. Jesus is the one who's bringing us back into the presence of God. Jesus is the one who's bringing us back to Eden. He's making all of this possible. Jesus is the one who harnesses that chaos and makes order from it, peace from all of it, brings life from the death. This is what we're celebrating time and time again. This is the the gospel. And they come back to that image of water over and over again to try and express it, what Jesus has done, what God is doing. And as we come to the table, as the band comes and and we begin to worship, like that's what we're saying. We're saying we believe that. But not, you know, with words in the same way we might normally. We're singing it. Believing it in a, a different kind of way, right? As we come, we bring all of our facts, all of our details, all of our, our circumstances, right? And instead of trying to make sense of it here, we're making sense of it in this larger way. Bringing others into our story, into our circumstance, singing together. There's something powerful about this. This is a thing that is, is a part of who we are, the way we were made to be, right? When we sing, we are anticipating that kingdom of God Jesus promises, where he will once again bring peace from our chaos and our brokenness. And the prayer is that as we come, as we give ourselves to this rhythm of singing, worshiping together, not just thinking, not just complaining, but just singing just worshiping, we'll find clarity. We'll find understanding, maybe in a way that we haven't. Maybe it will will sink in beyond just our head into the depths of our hearts, down into our souls. God's truth, the reality of who he is, might begin to sink in in a different kind of way. That's what we invite you into. You can come and, uh, as they play a song, tear off a piece of bread, uh, take a cup and, and move back toward your seats, and then just hold on to it. When they finish playing, I'll come back up. Uh, and lead us through that. But let's pray. Father, we thank you for this moment. We thank you for uh, just the opportunity to worship together, God, and we pray your spirit would offer us clarity. God, would you remind us that your spirit hovers over the waters of our experience, over our chaos, um, 
over our brokenness, over our struggle, our addiction, our depression and anxiety, all of these things we struggle to, to understand and make sense of, God, yeah, God, would you grant us understanding in your presence this morning? Would you grant us peace and the deep comfort of your spirit? We pray in Jesus' name.